0: You are listening to The Mystical Positivist. I'm your host Stuart Goodnick, joining me as co-host Rob Schmidt. This week on the show we converse by telephone with author Roger Lipsey, a biographer, art historian, translator, and for many decades a participant in the Gurdjieff teaching. His recently published book Gurdjieff Reconsidered is the subject of our discussion today. We'll get started with
1: that show after a short musical break. Musical interludes on this show are from a CD called The Music of G.I. Gurdjieff, performed by Vim van Dulleman on piano. This piece is called An Ancient Greek Melody.
0: I am your host, Stuart Goodnick. Joining me is co-host Rob Schmidt, director of Tawu Meditation Center and co-founder with myself and Jim Wilson of Minnie Rivers Books and Tea in Sebastopol. Great to be here. This week on the show, we converse by telephone with Roger Lipsy, a biographer, art historian, editor, and translator. Roger Lipsy earned both his M.A. and Ph.D. from New York University. His Ph.D. was in the History of Art at the Institute of Fine Arts at NYU. Dr. Lipsy has served as the director of the Society for Myth and Tradition, the publisher of Parabola Magazine. He is the author of An Art of Our Own, The Spiritual in 20th Century Art, Make Peace Before the Sun Goes Down, Angelic Mistakes, The Art of Thomas Merton, Have You Been to Delphi, Tales of the Ancient Oracle for Modern Minds, and Hammerskjold, A Life Hailed as the Definitive Dog Hammerskjold Biography. He edited three volumes of the work of Ananda F. Kumaraswamy. For many decades, he has been a participant in the Gurdjieff teaching. His recently published book, Gurdjieff Reconsidered, is the subject of our discussion today. Roger Lipsy, welcome to The Mystical Positivist. I'm so pleased to join you. Well,
1: thank you so much. And, and we, I'm going to begin with uh, the question that we uh, ask first-time guests on the show as a regular thing, and um, but l- I'll just preface it by saying that, um, uh, as uh, Stuart just related in his introduction, you have this long history with the Gurdjieff work, but I don't want you to limit um, the answers necessarily to something that point to that, because the question is an invitation to uh, cast your mind back to youth and childhood. And uh, tell us uh, in our, ge- our uh, audience about any experiences from that period in your life that, in retrospect, you would point to and say, ah, that was a precursor, a herald of the direction that, that uh, some part of or, or aspects of my life would later take, whether that's the Gurdjieff work or some other spiritual, etc. Um, work, um, is up to you. Well, good.
2: There was a man I really appreciated, and many of us did, um, Dr. Michel de Salsman. He was a psychiatrist who um, was uh, the son of Jean de Salsman and and very much part of the Gurdjieff lineage. And he died about 10 years ago, 10, 15 years ago. Mm -hmm. And Michel said that what we can offer people is a relationship and what the Gurdjieff work can offer people is a relationship and that was my experience even before I knew what it was I was being offered Hmm. I was 14 and had been dispatched with a lot of other teenage kids by my very kind and generous parents to travel in France and we spent a week in a beautiful place in the south of France where there was a family of, of three daughters and a very young son. Uh, and there was, uh, it was beside a river. and There were lots and lots of things to do. And in the evening, the parents would give us talks about one thing or another. I was already pretty good at French by then. And I liked this family and there was just something about them they were they had a light touch they had warmth they had humor they were just um so memorable for me that the next winter when i was 15 i wrote to them and said may i come back i'd like to come back on pension and just spend a week with you and and that's what i did and that's what i did year after year Hmm and simply out of attraction, out of a sense of relationship. When um, I turned to the father when I was 18 and said to him, you know, what is it? What is it that sustains your life, the life of this family? Why do I feel such well-being here? Uh... He said, well, there's a book you could read. And he suggested In Search of the Miraculous, the book by P.D. Uspensky, which many people are turned first to when they try to understand what the Gurdjieff teaching is. Actually, I was 17, so I went back home. I was at Yale College at the time, and I went to the perfectly wonderful Gotham Book Mart uh, on 47th Street, which was the place i knew i could find a um, rare books unusual books and i was shown the book and i i felt that it was too expensive you know i was just a kid on an allowance at the time so i put it back but a year later in paris <laughs> i did buy the book and i read it and at that time I spent part of the summer in a youth and reconstruction camp that was being run by the French government to engage young people in sort of positive activities. Uh, this was now 1961, summer of 61. <clears throat> and I remember reading the book, and there was a, a young man, uh, same age as me who was a very skeptical French high school student, um, brilliant as they come. And we would debate this book because I had completely espoused it. It just made such sense to me, as if I knew all of this, but had had to be um, strongly reminded of it. So that was the beginning. I went to see the father of that family, and eventually... After putting me to the test, we began to have discussions, and he sent me on to to, um, meet some people in New York City, where I was still at Yale, but I was close enough to New York, and I began to participate in the Gurdjieff teaching age, just about to turn 19.
1: That's a very early start compared to many people for for a serious uh, spiritual practice, uh, it seems to me.
2: It is an early start, but I was both. There were probably two factors in my life at that time. I was fairly miserable. You know, I was a classic maladjusted adolescent um, with with a, a lot of ideas in my head, but very little um, emotional understanding. Mm-hmm. And and also there was an odd trait that I had. For example. In sophomore year, when I was, how old was I, 20, I wrote a long paper on Blaise Pascal. Mm -hmm. And Pascal, the 17th century mathematician and thinker, um, became my first master. There's no question about that, he still is. Mm -hmm. Uh, Pascal's so-called pensée, his thoughts, are just a model of unflinching lucidity of a clear-eyed approach to oneself and to society and this became for me um, let's say the first teaching so in addition to being a messed up adolescent there was this other factor a kind of uh, flair for um, good teaching and it did guide me into the Gurdjieff work um, by
1: the age of nineteen well that's fascinating and and um, um, I like the, the, the word you used earlier lucidity um, strikes me as something that um, uh, when I when I you know when I read Gurdjieff himself his own writings even though there are very difficult there's very difficult language sometimes to follow it is all um uh, completely lucid if you are willing to put in the effort to follow what's being said and um and so um and so i appreciate that 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 this is that this was your entrance into um into the fourth way. By, by the way, uh, um, you didn't. Uh, um, I'm use. I just use the term the fourth way. You're using the word in both in your book and in in, in the discussion so far. The Gurdjieff of teaching. Do you have a? Um, is there is there a particular reason that you might uh, choose not to use the fourth the term fourth way?
2: Well, the term the fourth way, which was introduced. By Gurdjieff during what I've called the Russian Exposition, mm-hmm. which was the time when he began teaching in Moscow and St. Petersburg 1912 to 1917. Uh, that term was um, used then. He used it in contrast to the way of the fakir, the way of work with the body exclusively, the way of the monk, which is work with feeling, and what he called the way of the yogi, which is work with the mind somewhat exclusively, and his notion of the fourth way is that it engages all of what he called the centers, mind, feeling, body, and several aspects of body. Why didn't I use it? I, I didn't because it it's gotten rather tangled up in contemporary literature, um, and tangled up because people use it in different ways. It's become a kind of assertion for some for some authors and some groups, fourth way groups. Ah, uh, yes. And I didn't want to entangle myself in in that discourse. I see. And as well, I didn't so much speak of the Gurdjieff work because, although that is um, a characteristic term of this teaching. Mm-hmm. It, um, it, it it again sounds uh, like an insider term, and so I used what to me is a neutral and and essentially inspiring term, which is teaching.
0: Right. I'm w- I'm wondering if for uh, listeners who may not have as deep a familiarity with Gurdjieff and his work and his teaching, if you could just provide a, a brief sketch or overview of uh, who G.I. Gurdjieff was for listeners and, and you know, what what he, in a sense, what he, uh, you know, just we'll get into this more deeply, but what, what he brought to the West and the um, uh, why are we talking about this guy? Uh,
2: Gurdjieff was probably born in 1866, scholars debate his birth date, but if he was born in 1866 in a little town in the Caucasus at the time called uh, Alexandropol and now part of Armenia called Gyumri, uh, if he was born in 1866, then in 1949, the year of his death, he would have been 83 And he looked it. So I've accepted the date, 1866, on that very empirical basis, Mm -hmm. that he looked about 83. Um, I'm 76 now, and he looked a good deal older than I do. So very empirical on that that score. He was born in a place where many, many cultures and languages um, interacted his home, his first um, home language was Greek, so-called Pontic Greek, the Greek of, the, of Asia Minor. But everyone, he was living in an Armenian neighborhood, <coughs> and Armenia, Armenian was a lingua franca of, of where he lived. He quickly learned that language. Turkish as well, and Russian as well, because he entered the Russian school system and um, did his formal education in Russian. So, so here we have a young man living in a cultural melting uh, pot with four languages and four cultures easily at his disposal. The uh, he had many experiences. He recounts them in his autobiography. Meetings with remarkable men of occult, odd, miraculous, utterly strange things that happened around him uh, in one or another of the cultural settings that were available there. And this turned him into an inquirer. Uh, undoubtedly, he was innately an inquirer, but but these events around him uh, – were were a stimulus to be to launch a lifelong inquiry into the sense and aim of of life of human existence that's one of his phrases the sense and aim of human existence he set off with some comrades that he called the seekers of truth they had many different um uh, skills and knowledge among them from archaeology to medicine Um, and searched for some 20 years in Central Asia, I believe as far as Tibet, in North Africa, particularly Egypt, and in the Orthodox Christian world, the world of Mount Athos and other centers, uh, particularly in Armenia, today's Armenia. And they gathered a... A teaching that is not merely a synthesis of things heard or things observed, because Gurdjieff had a very strong independent genius um, in the realm of, let's call it, spiritual or psycho spiritual development. And what he assimilated from his travels became a an independent teaching with its own vocabulary that is partly of the east recognizably so and and western in its lucidity its clarity its non-sentimentality its um fundamentally secular approach to the challenge of being fully human Secular is not the end of the matter, but the invitation of his teaching is toward a long and serious process of self-study. And that very term, as well as other terms, self-observation, self-remembering, the mechanics of our nature, uh, all of these are lucid, Western kind of science that one applies to oneself, though that's not the end of the story, but it is the um, the opening. The opening chapters are of that kind.
0: And this was the, the stated or explicit intent that when he would describe his work, right, that, that he was taking something needed from the East and something needed from the West and bringing them together into a, uh, a whole teaching.
2: <clears throat> uh, that's true, but it always passed through this very special mind and looks quite different. For example, he does have a um, marvelous exposition, challenging exposition, of an idea that he calls identification. Which is the way that we humans um, working just uh, functioning just from our thoughts, or just from our feelings, or just from our bodies, um, without the wholeness of thought, feeling and body, the way that we get um, glued to things, entangled with things, have no independent perspective. Um, and this he calls identification. And that idea has circulated quite widely since he introduced it. You could say that it's a variation on the Hindu and Buddhist idea of attachment. I think that's true. But it's given another flavor, another kind of intensity. And it becomes a subject of, for self-study, for raising the question of who am I? And how am I living? Um, Am I living with increasing freedom from these attachments, from these identifications? Or am I a sort of puppet being driven by appetites and desires and, and such? So that's what I mean by a transformative mind. He did say, and this is an aphorism that was... Um, written in a special place that I'll tell you about in the 1920s, one of those aphorisms is take the understanding of the East and the knowledge of the West and then seek. So taking that literally, the understanding of the East, the spirituality, the, the great religions, the meditative practices, all of that, and the knowledge of the West, our, our technical knowledge, our incredible science, neither the one nor the other should be considered more than a basis for a search.
1: So both both are are required together in order to accomplish this um, examination that you're referring Correct. to. That's right. So, um... I don't know if I, if it's fair to leap ahead so much at this point, but I'm but I'm curious. I, I was curious from the first moment I saw the title of your of your book that's just been published a couple of months ago, um, Gurdjieff reconsidered. Um, so um, there's I have a lot that I'll want to say about the book because uh, there's a lot it, that it is uh, is worthy to say about it, but. Um, but I'm wondering if you could uh, frame for for our audience why this particular word used and how you um, how you deploy it throughout the text.
2: I think we could we could accomplish two things um, at the same time. You asked me to tell his his uh, movement through life, mm-hmm. and um, if you. Allow me to con- continue that a little longer. Um, you'll see why a reconsideration was needed. Please do. So, when the Russian Revolution came, he and his small circle of, of really courageous pupils left the um, great centers and moved to the Caucasus where he was familiar. They spent uh, nearly a year in Tiflis, now known as Tbilisi. But it, too, was overtaken by revolution. They then moved out to um, what was then called Constantinople and uh, and on to Germany, to Berlin, where they had some hope of establishing Gurdjieff's institute. It didn't work out. They moved on to Paris. And that's when, in 1922... Uh, they were able to establish what Gurdjieff called the Institute for the Harmonious Development of Man. And this this was a residential community about an hour from Paris in a, in a really beautiful manor house with something like 50, 50 acres around it of forest uh, at Fontainebleau Avant. It's quite near the chateau of Fontainebleau. That institute lasted until 1932, when, <clears throat> like so many things, the, the Great and worldwide Depression brought it down. There simply wasn't funding to continue it. At that point, well, let me say that during that time at the Priory, that's it was the that's the name that is often used for the institute. Um, during that time at the Priory. Kurcheev was the director of an institute. He would give periodic lectures there were it was a place of practice. It was a place of intensive practice of his of his teaching of this this way toward um, presence and awakening. When the institute had to close, he moved to Paris and lived in very modest circumstances, with just a few pupils who came to be known as the rope. These were British and American, primarily women, um, who happened to be lesbian, and all linked with each other through that. But some of them were uh, women of spectacular intelligence and ability. One of them was Catherine Hulme, who went on to write The Nuns' Story, which became a film with Catherine Hepburn in it that so many people enjoyed. Another was Jane Heap and her partner, Margaret Anderson. They were the founders, before they met Gertjev, of The Little Review in, I think it was based in Chicago, which was the first anywhere on this planet to publish sections of James Joyce's Ulysses. Um, that was very daring. They were actually, um, sued by the United States and, um, lost their suit over what was um, thought to be the obscenity of that text that they published. So they were very remarkable women. And those three were not the only ones. Um, Gritcheff also, ever since 1924, had been going back and forth to New York and other places in America. But still, in the 30s, he lived very modestly,
3: <clears throat>
2: and life was rather difficult for him. He chose to spend the war years and the Nazi occupation of Paris in Paris, and um had a group of French um, students at that time who became really the nucleus of what the Gurdjieff teaching would become in, for the next many decades. Uh, so that was a very, very rich time despite the Nazi occupation. <clears throat> and after the war, all the British and American pupils who had greatly missed him converged on his little apartment in Paris, and that was a time that I call fulfillment. It was a perfectly remarkable period in, in his life as it closed. I want to add one more thing about this life, um, the course of his life. When he was traveling in for those 20 years in Central Asia, North Africa, and so on, he was observing sacred dances in temples and in dervish brotherhoods in many different settings and he apparently had a perfect memory for for dance form and when he came to russia but particularly when he came to To Tiflis and later and later on consistently throughout his life as a teacher he began to introduce sacred dances and exercises as a means of self-study self-development the enrichment of of human being um, the as a path toward presence so his teaching is um, profoundly linked with a practice of dance, together with some really magnificent music that he co-composed with a pupil of Rimsky-Korsakov named Thomas de Hartmann, who was one of his pupils. So this begins to look like what the 19th century um, intellectuals used to call the Gesamtkunstwerk, it's the, the total work of art. The, the teaching had great ideas, it had dance, it had music, it had practice in the sense of um, an attentive approach to, an exploratory approach to the activities of daily life. It had become a, a full organism by the time he opened the Institute in 1922 so I wanted to tell you all that now why reconsidered, why Gurdjieff reconsidered starting in 1923 really as soon as he put down roots in in France in the west he met with very, what I would call, assaultive criticism. The first cause for that assaultive criticism was probably that he was something that people just didn't, had never seen before, which was a master, a guru, um, a, a charismatic, um, powerful, emanating human being with a very, very strong presence um, and so the, his very persona was the first cause for journalists um, making making hay um, particularly in England, the, the so-called gutter press but there was another cause and it was much more grave which is that he was he accepted to have the writer of short stories Catherine Mansfield As a pupil At the Priory She came there In late October 1922 And she came there As a very, very sick woman And he knew it She had terminal tuberculosis There was really Not going to be anything to do uh, To restore her health But she sought Gurdjieff And the Institute Because she wanted If not to remake her body To Explore what it is to be human, to to renew herself spiritually, if not physically. And Catherine Mansfield's um, letters to her husband from the priory are among the most beautiful and and vivid uh, testimonies that we have of that period. She was there for three months. She died there, and the press and Catherine Mansfield's friends in England and France, blamed Gertrudev. In fact, he had acted knowingly, with compassion. This is what she wanted. This was, what, this was how she wanted to live and die. And she, he gave her that. He gave her that opportunity. Uh, so, But he, he came in for a tremendous lot of criticism over that, as if he had killed her. That was round one.
1: I, uh, Round two might might I just jump in for, for just a moment? So, sure. so, so, uh, in terms of the, the criticism, as if he had killed her, but isn't isn't it also probably true that as if he had used her for his own ends, her notoriety um, in connection with with his uh, enterprise? She was
2: known only to a small circle at that time. Okay. She wasn't what we now know her to be. Ah, okay. You know, well, thank a, you for
1: a, clarifying that.
2: A member of the, uh, a, you know, a major figure in 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 modern letters. Mm-hmm. At the time, she was <laughs> recognized as a, you know, as a as a very good and interesting writer, but nowhere near the fame of, let's say, Virginia Woolf. Hmm. Okay. Um, that was to come later. Her reputation built as time went on. Thank you. Thank- and. Yes, please. I was just going to what, say,
1: please continue.
2: I'd like to read you <clears throat> something from one of Catherine's letters, mm-hmm. just because she characterized life at the Priory um, during those last three months of her of her life. <clears throat> so here she is writing to her husband. Mr. Gurdjieff likes me to go into the kitchen in the late afternoon and watch. I have a chair in a corner. It's a large kitchen with six helpers. Madame Ostrovsky, the head, walks about like a queen, exactly. She's extremely beautiful. She wears an old raincoat. Her chief helper, Nina, a big girl in a black apron, lovely, too, pounds things in mortars. The second cook chops at the table, bangs the saucer pans, sings, another runs in and out with plates and pots. A man in the scullery cleans the pots. The dog barks and lies on the floor, worrying a hearth brush. A little girl comes in with a bouquet of leaves for Olga Ivanovna. Mr. Gurdjieff strides in, takes up a handful of shredded cabbage and eats it. There were at least 20 pots on the stove. And it's so full of life and humor and ease that one wouldn't be anywhere else. It's just the same all through. Ease after rigidity expresses it more than anything I know. So that's Catherine in the last three months of her life. Hmm. Um, There was a round two of this assault of criticism, and it came very largely after Gurdjieff's death in 1949 when uh, several pupils who just hadn't grasped what had been what they were being offered uh were were too one was i, I would say too neurotic and, and nervous and tense to, to figure out what he was being offered and another there were some other problems but there were two let's call them rebel pupils french And one of them wrote a book published in 1954 called Monsieur Gurdjieff, Mr. Gurdjieff. And it is a compendium of true and false. The false, often scurrilous and really um, mendacious, the true, um, ranging from um, from Attractive truth to unattractive truth. And that book by Louis Povelles became the Bible. Anyone who wanted to know anything about Gurdjieff would just open that book. And it became the script. It offered um, an endless number of nasty and, I would say, largely untrue um, uh, perceptions of Gurdjieff and the teaching. And intellectuals, opinion makers, academics, by and large, just looked up that or even heard about it at second or third hand, and it became the the source capital S. And in setting out to write Gurdjieff reconsidered, I felt that I had two aims. The first was to show Gurdjieff's own development as a teacher and the development of the teaching from decade to decade. And really no one had done that. People had taken Gurdjieff and the teaching as something like a fixed whole, a fixed object. Mm -hmm. And that was not my perception. And one of my best friends in, in France, in the Gurdjieff teaching, um, you know, once she's very elderly now and knew him quite well, she once expressed with indignation that how could people think that he was that he stayed the same and that the teaching was identically the same through all that time? It wasn't. So I wanted to show Gershev in his fullness and as a an evolving teacher with an evolving teaching. That was the first thing I wanted to accomplish. And this was, for me, this was a uh, virtually an act of love and reverence. Um, I I saw and felt all of that in Gershев, and I wanted people to see and feel it as I did.
1: You succeed. Um, the book succeeds in communicating that. I'll just
2: yeah. Say. Thank you. And then, secondly, you know, I'm a uh, I've never been. Um, I've never been content to just acknowledge, just to accept that, that the result of Louis Pauvel's book, Mr. Gurdjieff that that criticism that assault, and there were others, would just go on and on and would be sort of part of the Gurdjieff the meaning of Gurdjieff forever and ever um, I couldn't accept that, because I know that the teaching, with its great ideas, and its dances, and its music, and its people, and its practices, is a majestic and beautiful thing. I know that. I've experienced that over decades. And yet there was all of this assaultive criticism. And for me, that was unacceptable. So I wanted to study who the um, critics were, what their thoughts were, to what extent they had a piece of truth, to what extent they were um, just emotionally driven, to what extent they were lying. I wanted to see all of that and I wrote a chapter in this book which which you two have read, uh Rob and Stewart, called Derision. And there I I I believe I've Shown what the assault is like, what its content yeah. is, and and what its shortcomings are.
0: Yeah, there's a, a couple of things I wanted to respond to with that um, in in that particular chapter that were fascinating for me. One is that you cleared up a minor mystery in my own life, because uh, in somewhere in the 1980s, uh, mid 80s, I had just connected with my own teacher and so I just was starting on a um a path of being involved and being influenced by the Gurdjieff work. So I was very excited about this. And I was visiting a friend in Boulder, Colorado and he introduced me to some someone, I think a friend of a friend, and it was this uh young French man who was at in Boulder studying Sanskrit, you know, so I thought he was clearly interested in spiritual practice and he was there with his father who was um now uh, somewhat senile and so he was taking care of his father but his father had been an eminent uh french man of letters i don't i don't recall his name uh but um he'd even received some awards um you know from the government so and you know in his dotage you know he showed me his medal and things like that and it was you know it was very sweet to see this young man taking care of his father and then I, I brought up the fact that I was um, interested in uh, Gurdjieff and uh, interested in his teaching. And he immediately dismissed that, saying, oh, he was just a black magician. And I couldn't for the life of me, based off of where I was, what I was reading or coming into contact with, I, I had no idea where this was coming from because it didn't really track with anything that uh, I read or any of the people that were influencing me had told me. But it was so immediate and so dismissive, and uh, there was no there was no uh, conversation after that on that topic. And when I read this chapter that you described, I realized the persistence of that kind of spite or that kind of impression that uh, through all the mechanisms that Gurdjieff speaks about in his own work, suggestibility and uh, the facts that we take as knowledge, things that someone tells us, these... Narrations, you know, became communicated, and they they had become truth for for uh, a, a number of people who might otherwise have found a gateway to something uh, quite beautiful in the work. So, I get and I appreciate, you know, in the, in what you were doing, that it's not that this is a conversation that happened in the nineteen fifties or the you know republished in the nineteen seventies. It's a conversation that needs to constantly be uh, revived. So I appreciate it. The other thing I wanted to say about the, your take on this, and you you, you spoke to this just a, a moment ago, and that's that I was also surprised in reading the chapter on Gurdjieff's critics how balanced you were, that you actually approached them as someone who was really trying to assume ultimately the best of intentions in the person that you were examining, even if for whatever reasons their intentions were distorted by their own neuroses, but but you didn't bring a neurotic approach to them, and you didn't bring anger to them. You simply were examining quite clearly, and uh, we'll use the word lucidly, what their motivations may have been, and how those impressions that got sort of waged against the Gurdjieff work after his death, uh, you know, how they land in the face of the the feeling and the uh, the elaboration that the rest of your book had created about his work
2: yeah that's that 's a very kind remark and i I think it 's also true the uh, you know my book is not intended it 's not a, a convert's book and it 's not intended to generate conversions, so I hope people will be attracted for. Many years to come to the Gurdjieff teaching, those who belong with it, those who can, who resonate to it. But my goal was simply that Gurdjieff and his teaching be acknowledged in in our spiritual culture uh, as just as important as, let's say, Krishnamurti, which is, who was is a household name, um, just as. As honorable as as uh, many others you might be able to think of. Really, I want him to be thought about. I want his thought to um, have its place in the in our time, which I regard as a as, a, as an axial age. The, the scholar and friend Cynthia Bourgeau, who wrote the foreword to my book. Um, argues, I think, very cogently that, that we are in the middle of an axial age. Um, and the spiritual culture that we have, uh, the religious and spiritual culture that we have, is, is, um, is changing and, I would say, deepening. A lot of, of old habit is, is dying. Um, there is something new. Um, approaching and it's a good thing provided that we keep our eyes open uh, and I want Gurdjieff and his teaching to be acknowledged within the, the realm of discourse that we're, where we're thinking about this and finding our way and experimenting
1: One of the things that struck me about your remarks a little earlier uh, in this conversation uh, was this um, uh, the sense of the many dimensions of the teaching that Gurdjieff brought to the West and, uh, or brought to the world, really. So, this feature of the many dimensions, the movements, the writing, the practices, uh, the ideas, um, is something that um there i can't i am i'm I've been struggling as as uh, as uh, you and Stuart have been speaking to think of anyone else comparable um one of the things I appreciate about um some of the things you have to say in Gurja free considered is is precisely that you do not adhere to the view that um, any one teaching ought to be the teaching for everyone. That's that's a, a sophistication that not everyone has, but it may be. I hope one of the features of uh, if if this is an axial age that we can hope to see emerge more fully in the, in the future. But but that um, that breadth of Gurdjieff's contribution is is something that. Um, that I get that, that, that you're you're trying to say uh, deserves um, reconsideration, and um, and the final thing I want to uh, the 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 question I have for you is, um, you know, when I first encountered uh, the Guruj of teaching um, in the 1970s, it was um, I think I had the impression. A sort of general cultural impression that a lot of people considered it, people who who I have to say were not familiar with it, except in some kind of outline form, but that it was a fairly sophisticated intellectual critique of humanity without a lot of heart. And one of the things about your book that I deeply appreciate is how humane a picture you paint, not just of Gurdjieff himself but also of of the people that he drew to him and and what they were up to what they conceived themselves as being up to and what they actually tried to accomplish and to whatever extent did accomplish so i i'm I'm wondering if 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 this um, obviously, you 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 come you came to the Gurdjieff work in a very different way, and I really appreciate that the story you told about how that happened. But I'm wondering if if what I what I'm pointing to is something that that resonates at all with your own experience of people who who may have no um, point of tangency except um, the most superficial. With uh, the Gurdjieff teachings. Does that make sense to you?
2: Yeah, no, I understand what you're saying. Um, so let's look at that. Anyone who listens to the Gurdjieff de Hartman music, and there are many, many recordings now, I especially like the ones by Lawrence Rosenthal and by Alain Kremsky, K R E M S K I, they're wonderful, wonderful pianists. And the music is published in four volumes about 15 years ago. Uh, anyone who listens to that music can't for a moment say that this is a, a teaching with, that lacks heart. The, the music is, is just astonishingly moving often and as varied as can be. Some friends and I were, were thinking about um, the kinds of expression that there are at, in the music, just just last weekend, and the the range is, for example, for the religious, the the, the clearly religious music. There's folk music. There's other kinds. There are dances, but the clearly religious music ranges from the most intimate, individual, searching, questioning, suffering quality to great hymns that that overwhelm you really with a sense of, of, of uh, a sacredness that is encompassing and far beyond one's own intimate experience, though accessible to intimate experience. So anyone who listens to the music, and I strongly recommend to your listeners um, that, um, that they do so, would never say that this is a teaching without heart. However, um, Gurdjieff did write a huge book that, in some chapters, is intellectually complex. Um, the book called The Elzebub's Tales to His Grandson, published just after his death, 1950. <clears throat> and there, the range there of, of um, let's call it, discourse. Is from storytelling, warm, interesting storytelling, to mythography, to the um, making of marvelous, mythic sequences, to very, very complex, esoteric um, uh, symbols that um, that all of us, to this day, not perhaps not all of us, but certainly I. Um, Struggle to grasp. And that's Gurdjieff uh, in a range from warm folkloric storytelling to esoteric symbols um, that challenge understanding for a lifetime. But, but even, even there, in his greatest book, one simply can't say that it's all head. It isn't.
0: I think the it's possible that some of that impression may you know come a bit from uh the effects of uh other writers in the fourth way like Wospinsky, where the, you know, there's more focus on the intellectual um uh system. But as Rob said, you know, what we appreciated especially about the book, and you said it yourself as you, you wrote it uh, from a place of reverence and love, that that comes through in the the heart of Gurdjieff and, and uh, his and his community, comes through so very much in that um, uh, book, and we are at a moment where we need to take a brief break, so... I, well,
1: we're delighted to continue the conversation, but uh, but we need to do our radio business here. So, um, anyway, go ahead, Stuart.
0: Yeah, so uh, I'm going to just hand you over uh, to uh, Rob, and then we'll take you off the air for a moment. We'll do some announcements, and then be back in a few minutes. Very good. We need to take a short break at the hour. You are listening to The Mystical Positivist. I'm your host, Stuart Goodnick. Joining me is co-host Rob Schmidt. This week on the show, we converse by telephone with author Roger Lipsy, a biographer, art historian, translator, and for many decades, a participant in the Gurdjieff teaching. He recently published a book, Gurdjieff Reconsidered, which is the subject of our discussion today. We'll return to our show
1: after a short musical break. Musical interludes on this show are from a CD called The Music of George Gurdjieff, performed by Wim van Dulleman on piano. This piece is called Hymn from a Truly Great Temple, Number 8.
0: Welcome back to The Mystical Positivist. I'm your host, Stuart Goodnick, joined by co-host Rob Schmidt, director of Talia Meditation Center and founder with myself and Jim Wilson of Minnie Rivers Books and Tea in Sebastopol, California. This week on the show, we converse by telephone with author Roger Lipsy, a biographer, art historian, translator, and for many decades, a participant in the Gurdjieff teaching. His recently published book, Gurdjieff Reconsidered, is the subject of our discussion today. So we wanted to uh, start this hour with a a question or a theme that left an impression on me and has sort of been echoing around in my uh, mentation uh, since I uh, read the book, and that was, uh, I think you introduced it in uh, the first or second chapter, and that's the excerpt of a quote from Gurdjieff, I think taken from uh, In Search of the Miraculous, where he draws out the distinction between knowledge versus being. And I'm interested in just understanding um, why you felt it important to sound that note early in the book and how you see that distinction as uh, providing kind of an ongoing insight into what Gurdjieff was really talking about throughout the book.
2: has, you know, a good deal of currency in 20th century philosophy, be it from Heidegger or Sartre and no doubt others, because I'm not really a very good, I'm not a very learned philosopher, but those two. And Kirchhoff's understanding of being is unique and, to my mind, very important and sets a... Um, sets an aim for us individual seekers that will be very progressively approached and has no um, no terminus there's no um, quality of being that isn't Surpassed by another and finer quality of being. So it's it's um, an important inspiration in his work. What he means by being, as I understand it, is a quality of grounded identity, a quality of of presence, which is a word that. he introduced early in in his teaching that represents that is the person that is who you are and you may have knowledge of this or that and that knowledge can be immensely useful uh, both to yourself and to others but being is a is a quality of a, a, a deep quality that um, is, is born of suffering and exploration of, of one's own identity and of relationships. And through one's what what Gurdjieff calls conscious labor and intentional suffering, through that process over many years, something consolidates in the very center of a man or woman, his or her being, their identity. And there's no factor more important
0: as as I see it, so in the what was interesting for me about introducing that theme as a consideration as one continues on through the book is that there's the invitation, of course, to both contemplate the being of Gurdjieff and the being level of the people around around him, and as you say, very courageous people who. Um, gave up a lot from the conventional world in order to dedicate themselves to this kind of work. So I, I, it was interesting to me, and it's certainly an interesting message for readers today because I think the critique that you offer, you know, that you quote there, is there as, was as valid in whenever that was originally written in the, the 10s or 20s uh, um, as it is today. And certainly a message that I think is important for us to reflect on as we contemplate the public sphere that we engage in today.
2: To say the least. Um, if you'll permit me, I'll read one paragraph um, much later than the um, quotation, the long quotation from Luspensky that you mentioned, in which um, I do a commentary on... Uh, one of the aphorisms that, again, was um, shared with the pupils at the Institute for Harmonious Development. Uh, so I'll read the aphorism, and then a commentary on it. The aphorism reads this way. Here, there are neither Russians nor English, Jews nor Christians, but only those who pursue one aim, to be able to be, So this aphorism I write returns us to Gurdjieff's exposition about knowledge and being to be in the lexicon of Gurdjieffian words and the lexicon of experience is many layered and many sided at one level it means to be present in this world present, a term and thought likely first introduced in the West in Gurdjieff's writings, now common. It means that one has attained or knows something of the way back to a sense of reality, of being there. But it means more than that. It means that one cares for and strives invisibly toward depth of humanity, toward conscience and awakened feeling towards some reserve of goodness and wisdom that can gradually reveal itself and offer guidance. To be is to be fully human at last, not a dreamer, not consumed by self-serving passions, not complacent. Further, it is a matter of contact and acknowledgement, open to whatever we intuit or know to be above us, open to one's fellow human beings to living things to all things that support decency of life when one encounters authentic being and others it evokes spontaneous respect
0: got it thank you and as i said i think that that um the but I, uh, another point to appreciate about the portraits in the book and the uh, feeling sense in the book is that the being of the subjects are evoked um, very well without without a uh, without uh, a forceful narration. You don't, you don't announce it. <laughs> you, don't, you don't announce it. Yeah, and and, that, and uh, Rob and I were talking about this as we were coming over to the studio that one of the. Elements that that is so effective in this uh, uh book is that you 're really a master at evoking a feeling sense without really any obvious moves on your part that you're doing that
2: isn 't that strange
0: <laughs> <laughs> i i don 't know is it strange
1: <laughs> but but I will say that you know uh, Stuart and I have read. You know, by no means all, at least I'm, I'm speaking for myself here, by no means all the Gurdjieff literature, but a fair amount. You know, I had a fair sampling of it. And um, and that is, uh, I wasn't expecting, when I picked up your book, I wasn't expecting to find, it, it's almost like you're doing an oil painting of Gurdjieff's teaching um and and not at the beginning of your career as an artist, but presumably at the, towards the end of your career as an artist because it's because there's a skillful interweaving such that technique is essentially invisible so i so i'm gonna invite you to talk about writing process here um with this book there's a couple of sub questions i suppose um one is um how you might have because of your closeness to the of teaching as you as you have mentioned today and you say in the book um, how did that make this a different writing project for you? That's one question um and um I guess I'm wondering. I'm wondering if, if I mean, you you are you are meticulous as we've already mentioned about being as objective as you can, even with people, the work of people that you disagree with with whom you disagree. Um, And was that something that you had to do differently from previous? works that you've, you know, still read through the list in the first hour of, of uh, uh, many of your previous books, and and I'm just wondering how that might have differed, or been not different than those other projects.
2: Yeah. Let me take the second question first, if I may. Sure. The You didn't read the subtitle, the sort of punchline of the book called Make Peace Before the Sun Goes Down. Mm. The subtitle is Thomas Merton's long encounter with his abbot, James Fox. Right. And that was a 20-year, 18- or 20-year relationship, which was extremely difficult for Merton Mm -hmm. and extremely difficult for Fox. They were often, um, you know, what's worse than loggerheads? They were often (laughs) worse than at loggerheads with each other. Merton, um, seeking... Um, a way of life as a hermit that um, <clears throat> didn't cohere with the values of the of the order at that time.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Merton seeking to travel because his great reputation and intelligence as a writer um, uh, led to invitations virtually all over the world, and because of Abbot James's um, restrictiveness. Merton left the Abbey of Gethsemane in central Kentucky a grand total of three times, apart from day trips to and medical <laughs> excuse me medical emergencies right. over a twenty seven year period. so you can see there was a lot of tension um, and I needed to write that relationship in in a way that did justice to both of them and didn't lie ever, mm-hmm. so that when I felt that um, that Abbot James was um, was really, really too restrictive and and caused misery in Merton that he didn't need to, mm-hmm. and it was basically inexcusable. I would say something like that, but when Merton was being um, fairly impossible, uh, I would say that too. So I, you know, I had my sympathies. That's clear. Merton was a very great individual, um, and, and remains a sort of a model of the seeker, of the religious seeker. One needn't look much farther than Thomas Merton for a perfect dynamic model of the religious seeker evolving over over time deepening finding so I had a lot of practice with that book you see um, being um, as intelligent as possible about very different people with very different motivations the the other question the first question you asked about how it affected me that I've known so many of the people who appear in the book and for those who who died before i um came to know the work, the Gertruv teaching um know them through through reputation, know them through their their pupils know um endless stories about them, how did that affect what I was? How I was writing—is that have I characterized your question?
1: Yes, and and um, I, I think that that's exactly right. And also, um, it's occurring to me to, sit, to ask you to add as well your your sense of the times in which these people lived, and and it's hard that 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 sounds like an easy thing, but I don't think it is easy to characterize a context in a, in a shorthand it's you, your book is not is not short but neither is it long really and and yet you you i appreciated as well the way you um contextualize what's going on in a very in a very straightforward um concise way
2: yeah well much of this history though, both the personal history and the of individuals in the general history of the teaching have been uh, familiar to me for many years. So, so uh, you know, I've known the, the context um, for quite some time, the broad context, where individuals are concerned. Let me just exemplify. There's a man who, uh, upon whom I really quite relied in, this, in my book, René Zuber.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: René um, he wrote a book called Who Are You, Mr. Gurdjieff?" Toward the end of his life, he died maybe 20 years ago. Uh, it's a very, very good book. It's published in English. That's one of the best uh, short um, witnesses, call it. Mm-hmm. And I knew him very well. I really um, just loved him like a son, really. And I remember standing at a marriage with him, looking at the the couple in the south of France, and, and he said to me, Le mariage, c'est la plus dure école. Marriage is the hardest school. <laughs> and, you know, we had this kind of relation of, of sort of, Part-time father to part-time son. It was very warm. Now, I wanted to include his perspectives as richly as possible in my book. And it happens that he was a journal keeper. Every year of his life, he he kept a, a detailed journal. He was a filmmaker and photographer. He helped make the films of the sacred dances. Um, so there are a lot of notes in his journals to which his son kindly gave me access about all sorts of things that wouldn't concern me what was going on in a given film or something Mm -hmm. of that kind but there were many many reflections about the gurdjieff teaching about his relations with certain people and so there i was you know a part-time son looking at the Essentially, the secret journal of my part time father for the first time, and finding in it treasures of understanding hmm. things that um, that I did include in the book, I think my index probably indicates where so th- this exemplifies you know both the personal relations that I had the privilege of. Of enjoying, of having over many years, but also the archival research that um, opened many things to me that uh, I would not otherwise have known and could not otherwise include.
1: Well, that's very. Su- that's a very sweet. Um, yeah. Story I mean <clears throat> obviously having access any scholar would wish to have access to the sort of material you 're talking about but um, um clearly, in what you just said you you have a, 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 an emotional stake um and 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 one of the sweet things about your book is precisely the 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 humaneness. Um, of the perspective that you offer and it's not just the, the eloquent final paragraph where that gets sort of summed up but it's also in your descriptions of people and I'm, and I'm, I'm thinking particularly of descriptions of people for example uh, at the Prairie um, you know in the 20s et etc. Um, and the ways in which they're—it's um, a—it's—it's it's a sort of tapestry that that you uh, weave with, um, because people are we—you're weaving people in and out of this impression that you are evidently um, trying to create. I, and I'm, and I, and I and I and so the question comes up for me. I understand from everything you've said today that. That you had this wish to in a sense humanize um, the teaching in a way that you know at the end of at the end of the last hour I was asking you about the the mis- m- misapprehensions uh, some of the common ones uh about Gurdjieff's teaching but but you um, you had this this goal um, but it is it is done uh, seamlessly. The tapestry is pretty seamless f- from this reader's perspective, and I'm wondering if you had some kind of uh, ideation about how to accomplish that, or is it just simply many years of writing?
2: It's many years of writing. If that's at the level of craft, mm-hmm. it is a. Um, Passionate love of language mm-hmm. and it's a passionate love of the story and and its people and in that re- in that respect it wrote itself you
0: know, one one thing I was struck by you know, sort of related to this theme is that. In the section of the toward the end where you're describing the uh, years immediately after um, Gurdjieff's death, and kind of the and in, in it also in the chapter the the post-war years as uh, Madame de saltzman is uh, uh, rising up to take on more responsibility for Gurdjieff's legacy, that you you actually have a an aside where you you say that. Um, uh friends of yours who have read drafts of this uh, uh thought that it read a little bit like a hagiography and that uh you uh should have been more critical of her and sort of uh talked about some of the issues people had with the Saltzman, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And it's interesting because uh when I read that at first it sort of like set me up to sort of uh um expect um just that. But it actually it, it doesn't it doesn't read like that. in a in a, in a way you no more dwell on the imperfections of the characters. Not not you don't elide anything. But but uh, in the same way that when you deal with the critics, you also you're just sort of painting them with a kind of an objective brush. And the the weight of the story as a whole uh, gives testimony to the relative meaning of those uh, uh, critiques. And similarly, I think uh, the weight of the story as a whole put into perspective for me something about Madame de Saltzman that you elicit in a way that I haven't seen elicited before. And let me me just frame this, and then I'd like to get your response. Uh, The frame is that I realize that I take for granted that when Gurdjieff died uh, that this legacy would go on and that there there would be this... um, Gurdjieff Foundation and books and things like that, and I'm I am uh, 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 being in my late fifties, an inheritor of things that happened many many years before before and before I was born, and yet you describe in a, a lot more clarity and emotional reality that when Gurdjieff died, you had a group of people who really did not know what was going to happen and did not know had no clarity about what was what they were supposed to do uh and it's almost it's almost like like starting a a business or starting a restaurant or something you have no idea uh if if this is going to go on and if you can live up to the legacy of the teaching that you received and the early communications with um uh uh, madame de saltzman with uh olga right about uh you know We've we've got to work now. We've got it. We've actually started to put this together. Or the descriptions about how you really had lots of different threads of people who had worked with Gurdjieff, but no single unifying theme except Gurdjieff the man. And now there had to be the creation of an aim that unified everybody. And these were not foregone conclusions. And uh, in reading your description of that uh in a way i realized the miracle of surviving those times that we actually have a legacy that we can inherit so i'm curious how you know if if if, I, if i'm reading that right and if you know if that you know uh because that was a surprise for me in this book i didn't i didn't actually expect to kind of catch that emotional uh uh sense from this
2: i think you're reading it right um and that chapter the material in that chapter has never appeared in print before. It, it's, it's virtually all archival, and and you know I owe a debt to those who are generous enough to share that material. Um, but the, as someone once said, the end is not yet. Every generation faces that um, that challenge, Madam Southman. And her generation faced it. Those who survived her, her pupils, faced it when she left, and it has to be faced again. Um, really, at every turn of the of the wheel, it it has its own characteristics now. For Gurdjieff, <laughs> students and teachers who who face um, very real challenges and the issue i think the issue there's a beautiful metaphor or analogy because if, if a teaching if a teaching is simply subject to entropy then it will attenuate and weaken and eventually be a kind of shell that looks like the teaching but lacks the the energy the genius Of the teaching and that can happen that's a threat that's a danger and an analogy for that is those sort of children's game where you have five or six heavy spheres strung up on a, a kind of small bench and you you throw you know on strings and you let one sphere or ball strike against the others and they strike and they strike and they strike. Do you remember that? And eventually they stop striking. It's just quiescent. The entropy has prevailed. There's another analogy, which is the one I find that I cling to and hope for the best from, which is when you light a candle from another candle. Each candle has its fuel. The flame. Is passed on it's the same flame but each candle has to have its own fuel uh, for this uh, light to continue and that's the that's the hope is that the students in any teaching not just the Gurdjieff teaching but in any real teaching that's demanding that's long term that asks much of you and gives much in return that the, the the pupils will have that light, despite the fact that they are third or fourth or who knows how many generations distant from the founder.
1: Thank
3: you. So
2: what I'm they sorry. face is what we face.
1: Fair enough. That makes that makes uh, complete sense. But let me ask you about another dimension of this. So. Um what you 're describing is, is is you know ha- has the the sense of an almost genetic heritability uh, obviously it doesn 't work just that way but um because we 're talking about matters beyond the mere transmission of genes but um but what about the people who may never have worked directly with umkerjiev or Central students of Gurdjieff, but who were nev- nevertheless profoundly inspired by aspects of Gurdjieff's work now obviously there can be many responses um, in the ways that um, uh, depending on the on the the level of being as it were of of each of those people inspired. And who may decide to take on a part of the Gurdjieff work? I'm wondering if you have any thoughts that you can share with us about your your sense of of how that might be possibly at times authentic, possibly at times inauthentic. How does that how does that uh, uh, land with you?
2: Yeah, there there could be something to to say about that. Um, the man to whom, from whom I learned the most, and with whom I worked for twenty-three years, was Lord Pentland. who's mm-hmm. um, quite well published as John Pentland, right? Um, and he was a direct pupil of Gurdjieff, and he helped to publish Beelzebub's Tales and, and many of the books that were published later. And I actually helped him as co-editor for um, quite a few of the of the later books. Hmm. And he said that, I'll use his language, that Mr. Gurdjieff, by publishing Beelzebub's tales, and by uh, accepting the validity of P.D. Uspensky's book, went over the heads of his pupils. That's the way he put it.
3: Hmm.
2: He put the teaching, at least, you know... Uh, Elements of the teaching, not the dances, not the music, but still masses of ideas, masses of attitudes,
3: um, and practices. much
2: much to work with. He put it in the public space,
3: mm-hmm. and he
2: did that um, uh, as among the last acts of his uh, of his life, so there's plenty to work with, uh, even if one has never met a pupil of a pupil of Gurdjieff. However, there is a, a culture of the Gurdjieff teaching. The, the, the dances, the so-called movements, are only taught in certain places, and the development of a good teacher of those dances takes years. It takes years and years as a student in a class, it takes another years and years to um, develop what one could coldly call a pedagogic technique, you know, a way of, of construing the dances and of passing them on, um, a way of working with people who are struggling and suffering and sweating and caring and having illuminations all in the course of an hour. It's a culture. And... I think uh as well, the Gurdjieff teaching, though there's all this written matter, is an oral teaching it uh, There are many, many things that only pass from mouth to ear, as this expression goes mm-hmm. and uh, and beyond that there's there are attitudes, there are atmospheres, there are memories. Um, continuities of relationship um from generation to generation, and all of that is more densely and acutely um available within the within the the lineages that 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 uh that Gertjev himself set in motion through Jean de Salsman. Um, Some might say through J.G. Bennett. Um, I knew Mr. Nyland, Willem Nyland. He has, there are groups that operate in his name, and there are impressive people among them, and he himself was impressive. So this culture of the teaching is available more densely, more acutely in certain places and not others. So someone impressed by the writings can make can turn in many different directions one can can say that you know the that the idea of being and knowledge or the idea of mechanicality of sleep and awakening that these are marvelous things and one can work with them and not go any and not seek out a center of the gurdjieff teaching but someone else may feel that the Make kind of sense that there's a culture of the teaching passed from generation to generation, that it is ultimately an oral teaching, and go out of his or her way to find a center. Um, and there are many across this country that um, that are linked together uh, and can provide that kind of uh, of richness of experience.
0: Got it. I think uh, we, as we approach the the close of this conversation, I also wanted to just ask kind of a related question because I think you you touch you know the very very nicely on the the legacy in just what you were saying and the availability of the the culture of the teaching, the culture of the Gurdjieff work and the Gurdjieff teaching as it was you know in the, in its concentrated form. One thing that you didn't, um, choose to address in the, in the book, and it's not, that's not a, it doesn't diminish in any way. I'm I'm just more curious in your response of how you have seen the teaching of the, the Gurdjieff work, uh, and, and permeate into things, into culture, society, uh, adjacent teaching lineages, um since Gurdjieff's death, you know, in ways that don't necessarily even directly acknowledge Gurdjieff anymore, but are clear ripples from the, uh, you know, the powerful stone that fell into the pond of our lives.
2: Yeah, I think that there's there's quite a lot of that. I mean, I have friends in in Zen um, more... 20 years ago than now but still and when uh, some friends 20 years ago uh elders in his zen monastery were setting out to have their fall on their fall intensive practice period <clears throat> the uh the leader of that practice period wrote a little note and, and said we're all going to have to work on ourselves more and more and it's pure gurdjian language yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was struck by that. Uh, the notions of presence uh, is of is Gurdjieffian. I don't know where else that came from. And I don't know that it came from Vedanta or or from Buddhism exactly, from Buddhist language. It seems to be Gurdjieffian, and it's all over now. So there there are those kinds of I would say. Um, a flow of Gurdjieff's concepts, his language and ideas, into the uh, the shared culture of American spirituality. Um,
0: yeah, yeah, but Go ahead. my
2: book, nonetheless, is intended to bring about a shared inquiry between um, and and respect that. Will go far beyond just sort of unconscious currents moving here and there.
1: Right. I w- I would just add briefly the the whole enneagram, psychology and enneagram m- movement that um, certainly in our spiritual bookstore I see mm-hmm. <laughs> has become very popular and often there's little or nothing uh, referenced to Gurdjieff in the in the Correct. books that have that have come out in 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 dec- the recent decades so and
2: may i just say again isn't that strange <laughs> <laughs> i i couldn't agree more <laughs> yeah so no, i don't know just when we need to stop there's a little bit of of uh, a little piece of writing a paragraph that i'd like to read you
0: yeah please we have just, we have about uh, three minutes or so
2: okay well permit me to make yes. use of them there was uh working with gurdjieff in the 1940s in paris There was a writer named Luc Dietrich Mm -hmm. and a uh, a wonderful man named Henri Tracol. And Dietrich was younger, and he asked the question um, in writing to Tracol. He said, how to define the right attitude toward Mr. Gertrudev? What should the pupil's attitude be? And Tracol actually responded in writing as follows. Never forget what one is seeking from him. Never lose sight of the fact that he is the master, but also that he is a man. And keep a tight rein on any subjective reaction with regard to him. Be always on the alert. Do not let yourself be caught in the traps he sets. Know how to be open to him without abandoning yourself know how to exact from him the word
1: well Roger Lipsy thank you so much um, for um, joining us for this conversation on the mystical positivist we want to invite you to let uh, any interested listeners know about how to contact you and I believe you have a website from your previous book that would be uh, offer ways to do that
2: in, yes, thank you. In two months or so, there's going to be a RogerLipsy.net website. I'm working on it now. But meanwhile, and it'll have a contact form. Meanwhile, <clears throat> uh, there is a website, dog Uh It's spelled like the Secretary General, but add the hyphen, dog uh. Um And there's a contact form there, and I'll be glad to hear from any listeners.
0: Excellent. Well, we really appreciate the uh, time you took this afternoon. The book Gurdjieff reconsidered is uh, uh, a beautiful read. We highly recommend it. It's uh, 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 quite a contribution to the uh, Gurdjieff canon, and uh,
3: uh, and we, we're
0: grateful. Yeah, we, we're very grateful, and we look forward to uh, future conversations. Maybe so. Thank you so much. You have been listening to the Mystical Positivist. This is your host, Stuart Goodnick. This week on the show, co-host Rob Schmidt and I have been speaking by telephone with author Roger Lipsy, a biographer, art historian, translator, and for many decades a participant in the Gurge Teaching. He recently recently published a, a book, his recently published book, Gurge Reconsidered, was the subject of our conversation today. Next week on the show, we feature a conversation with our good friend, Ken McLeod. Ken learned Tibetan, translated for his teacher, Kalu Rinpoche, and has published a number of highly regarded books about the Tibetan Buddha Dharma, including Reflections on Silver River, An Arrow to the Heart, and his most recent book, Trackless Path. He resides in Sonoma County, California, where he is working on another book and is the founder of Unfettered Mind, a Dharma organization featuring an online Dharma teaching repository and resource. Tune in for that show on Saturday, May 11th from 4 to 6 p.m. This week on the spiritual calendar in Sonoma County, it's Thursdays at Many Rivers and, uh, on May 9th, the Baby Moon Book for Pregnant Couples. This is with Cindy Scott Fuchs, author of the Baby Moon Book. That's Thursday, May 9th, 7.30 p.m., Many Rivers, Books and Tea, 130 South Main Street in Sebastopol, Baby Moon is a pre-birth gateway for pregnant couples. This beautifully illustrated keepsake enhances the Baby Moon experience, offering inspirational activities to help strengthen connection, personal and spiritual, instructional photo guide for teaching, the healing art of relaxation, journal pages to document your adventures. Cindy Scott Fuchs is a Reiki master teacher, prenatal life and wellness coach, founder of the Mellow Mommy Method of Manifesting. And then the following week on Thursday, May 16th, Taoism, Psychotherapy, and Our Human Soul with Raymond Bart Vespe, Ph.D., former California Institute of Integral Studies professor. That's Thursday, May 16th, 7.30 p.m. Again, Mini Rivers, Books and Tea, 130 South Main Street in Sebastopol. The program will present the eight principal Chinese Taoist experiential concepts of Tao. Da, Qi, Yin, Yang, Wu Wei, Zuchan, Wan Wanwu, and Dazhen. Selected passages and tales will be read from the presenters' original renditions of Lao Tzu's Dao Ching, Chuang Tzu's Nei Pieng, and Li Tzu's Tsing Shi Sheng, along with their psychotherapeutic and soul journeying commentaries psychotherapy is considered as attending the soul and as an attending relationship process. So-called psychotherapists are wise, true, and real attenders, and so-called patients are human beings. The Tao Ching in particular is regarded as being composed of 81 spirit-soul passages that we humans may make in the ensuing process of our soul work, soul-making, and soul journeying throughout the course and the cycle of our lives. A handout will be provided and some time will be made for attenders to ask questions or make comments about the integration of Chinese Taoist principles, Western psychotherapy processes, and spiritual practices as transformative ways of human being and living. Ray has been a licensed counselor since 1972. He was an associate professor in the Integral Counseling Psychology Program at the California Institute of Integral Studies from 1972 to 1990, where he taught courses in Eastern Sutras and Taoist psychotherapy. Ray directed the Integral Counseling Center of CIIS and was clinical director of the Marin Treatment Center. He is a long-standing student of Chinese Taoist philosophy and practitioner of Tai Chi as and has worked with Tao Masters Alan Watts, Ao Huang, and Jifu Feng. So again, that's Thursday, May 16th. Thank you for joining us once again for The Mystical Positivist. Podcasts of all our shows can be found at www.mysticalpositivist.blogspot.com as well as commentary and discussion of topics of interest to the show. Also, please send comments and feedback to mysticalpositivist at gmail.com. Join us again next Saturday. We leave you with music from a CD called The Music of G.I. Gurdjieff, performed by
1: Wim van Dulleman on piano. This piece is called The Octave.